And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. 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 Hello, everyone, and welcome to Earth Destruction Directive. I am your host, as always, Mr. Luke Giaconetti. I want to thank everyone for downloading and listening to the show today. And I hope everyone enjoyed our last episode where we took a look at the IDW miniseries Godzilla Cataclysm. And uh, we also took a look at Marvel Godzilla number 7 featuring Red Ronin. Got a good episode for you today. We're going to be taking a look at um, one of the, um, you know, um, how do I say this, most noteworthy, most controversial, most uh, divisive movies from the Heisei era of Godzilla, Godzilla vs. Space Godzilla, featuring the debut of the titular space monster, as well as Marvel Godzilla number 8, featuring the first battle between Godzilla and the Red Ronin. Now, before we get into that, we've got a little bit of news. Up first, breaking news right as we're going into recording is that Shin Gojira has been nominated for 11 Japanese Academy Awards, including Picture of the Year and Director of the Year for Hideaki Anno and Shinji Higuchi, and Best Actor for Hiroki Hasegawa, who played Deputy Chief Rando, the main character. Now, uh, there's also several technical awards and editing awards and, uh, you know, more, like I said, more technical awards in there as well. It is the most nominated film for the Japanese Academy Prizes uh, this year. Uh, very interesting, because Godzilla films tend to um, not get nominated for these outside of the technical awards, so... And I'm very glad to see it getting uh, nominated for some awards, because like I said, I really enjoyed it, and enjoyed the heck out of it, and, um, you know, was really impressed by the film, more than just as a piece of uh, fan work. So I'm very glad to see it getting some, uh, some recognition. The awards are March 3rd, so keep it tuned here, and we'll let you know how it does at the Japanese Academy. And uh, also, right as we're going to recording, a new trailer has dropped for the Power Rangers movie, which opens up in March. And uh, this trailer gives us our first look at Zordon, uh, who is played by Brian Cranston, who, of course, was also in Godzilla 2014 and did voice work for several monsters in the original Mighty Morphin Power Rangers TV show back in the 90s. We also get a good look at Alpha 5, who looks uh, a little bit like uh, Canagon from uh, Ultra Q. Um, uh, we also get the Putty Patrollers, which, as was speculated from when we saw the toys of these, were created by Rita from the materials in a roadway that she rips apart. Uh, Goldar, who apparently is made of gold. We also get some shots of the individual Zords, including the Pterodactyl Zord looking kind of like a fighter jet, with Kimberly in the cockpit, you know, strafing down the street at Goldar. And at the very end of the trailer, we get to see the Megazord, and it uh, looks very cool. And, um, you know, I saw the original Mighty Morphin Power Rangers the movie in the theater, and you'd better believe that I'm going to go see this one in the theater as well. I am very excited for this. You know, one thing, um, you know, uh, I've seen this compared a lot to Transformers, and in a lot of ways that's probably true. You know, they're both, um, you know, uh, reboots of toy-based television shows from either the 80s or the 90s. 
and they got a lot of CG effects and all that. But one thing I will say that Power Rangers is different than Transformers is that, you know, Transformers has to shoehorn in the human characters. You know, the human characters were never the um, the main focus of a Transformers series. It was always the Transformers themselves. Not that um, And I'm not saying that they weren't character-driven, because they were. Beast Wars especially was, and Beast Machines, but after it, very character-driven, but not a human character. Whereas Mighty Morphin Power Rangers was very much driven by the human characters, and they don't need to add them, you know, add a human interest. You already have the human interest in there with the five teenagers with attitude. So... Uh, as an update of that, I, I think it'll really work. Another thing I've always liked about Power Rangers, you know, despite um, what some people think, what's the message of Power Rangers? Teamwork, acceptance, tolerance, diversity, uh, discipline. You know, th- these are good messages, and I think if the, if the film can tap into some of that, it looks like it is tapping into some of the aspects of diversity and tolerance, I think it'd be, uh, it'll, it should be an enjoyable film, and I'm looking forward to it and very much uh, anticipate going to go see it in the theater. So, uh, if you have any news related to Giant Monsters or Daikaiju or Power Rangers or anything like that, go ahead and send that in to Directive at yahoo.com, and we'll make sure to report on it here on the show. Now, with that out of the way, we're going to take a quick break, and we will be right back with Godzilla versus Space Godzilla. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Blood God Worshippers Hour. I'm the Reverend James Philip Bloodstrangler, and this is your Hour of Power with our towering, bloodthirsty Lord of Chaos. All praise be to corn, blood for the Blood God. Hello ladies and gentlemen, this is Jason Giaconetti. You may recognize my voice from the Vault of Starling Monster Horror Tales of Terror. And if you don't, you should be listening. But today I need to ask you a few questions. Do you like big bugs and you cannot lie? Other robots just can't deny that when the Queen of Space walks in and puts a blast in your face that your gears get sprung? Are you deep in the bee we're sharing? Are you hooked and you can't stop staring? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then have I got a podcast for you. Bots, Bugs, and Babes, the B-Movie Podcast. From classics to cults and all the yummy, yummy cheese in between. Look for my new show, Bots, Bugs, and Babes, on the Two True Freaks Network and on iTunes. That's Bots, Bugs, and Babes, the B-Movie Podcast. Double J on the Triple B is your hookup. Holler if you hear me. Okay, we are back on Earth Destruction Directive. Our movie this time out is Godzilla vs. Space Godzilla, which was released on December 10th, 1994 in Japan. The film was never released theatrically in the United States, but did make its way direct-to-video later on in the 90s, with the then-DVD and Blu-ray releases following after that. Our director is Kensho Yamashita, our writer Hiroshi Kashiwabara, special effects by Koichi Kawakita, the producers were Tamayuki Tanaka and Shogo Tomiyama. After the destruction of Mechagodzilla, the United Nations Godzilla Countermeasure Center, UNGCC, launches two new anti-Godzilla plans. The first is Project T, which will attempt to use amplified psychic powers to influence Godzilla away from populated areas. The other is the Mobile Operations Godzilla Expert Robot Aerotype, Mogira, a new mecha capable of splitting into a drill tank called Land Mogera and a jet named Star Falcon. 
Meanwhile, deep in space, a new monster is born, surrounded by white crystals. On Earth, Mickey Saigusa, unsurprisingly part of Project T, is visited by the Cosmos, who warn that a powerful monster is coming and will destroy the Earth. Meanwhile, UNGCC men Koji and Kyo arrive on Birth Island, where they are met by Yuki, a battle-hardened vet who has been observing Godzilla and Little Godzilla. The UNGCC men are there to prepare a test of Project T, which begins with the arrival of Professor Gondo and Dr. Okubo, the two leads of the project, and Mickey. Yuki is disinterested in the test, instead desiring to kill Godzilla with a blood coagulant and avenge the death of his friend Colonel Gondo during Godzilla's assault on Osaka in 1989. Colonel Gondo, whose younger sister, is the self-same Professor Gondo of Project T. Koji and Kyo are able to shoot a small satellite receiver into the back of Godzilla's neck, and through amplification of Mickey's power are able to turn Big G back toward the sea. In space, a NASA space station is destroyed by mysterious crystals, so Mogera is scrambled to intercept. The machine puts up a valiant fight, but the space monster makes short work of Mogera, leaving it limping home as the monster continues towards Earth. The monster lands on Birth Island and attacks Little Godzilla. The space monster is revealed to look very similar to Godzilla, only with huge crystalline shoulder pads, a jawline somewhat like Biolanti, and several strange powers including seemingly telekinesis and a twisting, looping corona beam. Godzilla intervenes, but he too is outmatched by the strange monster and is unable to stop it from trapping little Godzilla in a crystalline prison. The space monster leaves for Japan with Godzilla in pursuit. The UNGCC calls an emergency briefing and the monster is theorized to have been, been created by Godzilla cells, brought into space either by Biolanti or Mothra, which entered a black hole and emerged from a white hole, and thus the monster is dubbed Space Godzilla. With all efforts now funneled into this threat, the UNGCC team is recalled from Birth Island. Back on the mainland, though, Mickey goes missing, as Dr. Okubo is evidently working with the Yakuza. They kidnap Mickey with the plan to use Project T to control Godzilla. Koji, Kyo, and Yuki make a daring rescue, aided by Mickey discovering her own latent telekinetic powers. Space Godzilla makes landfall in Fukuoka, immediately raising countless crystals from the ground and turning the city itself into a power conduit, channeling cosmic energy through the crystals to make itself stronger, with Fukuoka Tower acting as the central point. Mogera, now piloted by Yuki, Koji, and Kyo, is dispatched, but Yuki still has vengeance on his mind and initially goes after Godzilla instead. Koji and Kyo knock Yuki out and assume control, but even with its arsenal of weapons, including the SPIRAL GRENADE, Mogura is still outmatched. Godzilla arrives in Fukuoka, but Space Godzilla again uses his numerous powers to overwhelm the king of the monsters. Discovering that, like Folgers, the secret is in the crystals, the Mogera splits in two, with Land Mogera destroying the crystals from underground, while Yuki puts aside his vendetta and engages Space Godzilla in Star Falcon. Godzilla destroys Fukuoka Tower, and Space Godzilla begins to weaken. Recombining, Mogera fires two SPIRAL GRENADES into Space Godzilla's shoulder crystals, which sets up Godzilla to incinerate the evil monster through the supercharged radiation of the Red Spiral Beam. The threat over, Godzilla returns to Birth Island, with Mickey using her telekinesis to remove the receiver from his neck. 
The cosmos reappear, telling Mickey that the Earth is safe, and so is little Godzilla, shown happily blowing radioactive bubbles on Birth Island. Yuki, tired from the years of his single-minded vendetta, speaks kindly to Professor Gondo, asking her if she would like to see the world. At the same time, Mickey and Koji embrace young love having blossomed through their shared hardships. And thus Kyo is left by himself, screaming in impotent rage that he and Godzilla are not finished with each other. But that is another story. Okay, uh, as I said um, in the intro, this film is very divisive. There's a lot of folks that do not like this film, and there's a lot of folks that actually have a lot of affection for this film. And when this was originally released, uh, like I said, coming on the heels of Godzilla vs. Mechgodzilla, a lot of people just didn't care for it. And, you know, I, I think it, I don't know that it's been reevaluated, but I think people still kind of, it's still kind of a one that, you know, either have one opinion or another. I always kind of fell on the like side of it, so I was interested to see how I would respond to it trying to watch it now for the show. Let's get into the notes and, and let's see where, where it takes us. Uh, the Mogera. Uh, of course, we see it right at the beginning, and as is um, Tokusatsu's law, uh, it is underground and surrounded by catwalks and gantries. I mean, I would expect nothing less than to see little men on catwalks and gantries walking around the giant robot, um, you know, little sparks flying off as they fix things here and there. Um, the name Mogera, or Mogera, is different in the U.S. and in the Japanese. In the Japanese, it is an acronym, as I said, for Mobile Operations Godzilla Expert Robot Aerotype. In the U.S., they add the U in there, and it's Mobile Operations Godzilla Universal Expert Robot Aerotype. I don't have a problem with that. I usually use the American spelling, um, and you know, just, just because that's what I'm more used to. Also, the Trendmasters toy is where the Universal um, uh, item first came from. That's where I first remember seeing it. Uh, Mogera is, of course, the giant mole robot we first thought in The Mysterians, which was, of course, part of this show way back in episode 37. Um, interesting about the, the dub, and I watched this with the dub instead of with the subtitles. Um, they use Mogera, is how they pronounce it. I always said Mogera or Mogera, but they say Mogera, which is kind of odd. It's a little hard to pronounce. I always said Mogera. You know, it's one of those things with um, you know, pronouncing Japanese monster names in English is that I always tried to say it the best way I could looking at the Romanized Japanese, but that's not always the way that Toho wants us to say it. Um, the classic example, of course, is King Ghidorah versus King Ghidorah. And to say King Ghidorah, now they want us to say King Ghidorah. I always, and, and if you listen to the Japanese, they say Mogura. They don't say Mogira. They say Mogura, you know, so I, I always say Mogura, and that, that's me. I, I said Mogira for the for the um, the summary, just because that's what the uh, the international dub is, you know, we know who we're talking about, the big mole guy. I mean, it's 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 Mo it's Mogra as far as I'm concerned, and I know maybe I'm wrong, but you know what, I came to it honestly. <laughs> if I'm wrong, at least I'm consistent. So I got that going on, if nothing else. Uh, we get we catch up with uh, Mickey Saigusa, who is our you know main recurring character in the Heisei films. And she gets a haircut, which uh, mostly so that we can see her earrings move around when she uses her telekinetic powers. Project T, the natural progression, I would say, from the use of ESP earlier in the Heisei films. You know, we did, uh, Mickey became like a one-woman Project T back in Godzilla vs. Biolanti, where they set her up and used her as like a blockade to turn Godzilla away and back out to sea. So, kind of the natural progression that they would continue to use that since they showed some uh, success in doing it. And naturally, again, with uh, the Mogra, 
um, after Mechagodzilla. Yeah, Mechagodzilla got destroyed, but he was effective. So, you know, it makes sense that they would revisit the giant robot, um, uh, you know, project again. And uh, instead of making a Mechagodzilla, we'll make a Mogra so we can sell more toys, you know. And you want to have one that can, you know, split in half and, you know, uh, Getai combine back together and all that. So, naturally. Um, as Mickey's walking, suddenly there's Mothra. And, uh, you know, having Mothra cameo in the film, I think, is more towards the idea that they were doing the Mothra solo films right around this time is when the first one was starting. They were in pre-production. And, you know, Mothra is still very popular. And plus, you know, it gives it gives everybody kind of a heads up that the space monster is showing up. I mean, uh, the, the little fairy Mothra that we see reminds me a lot of the Mothra solo films. We'll cover them eventually. They're, they're very, very much uh, what I call kid vid. They're children's movies, not really serious. I put serious in air quotes. Um monster movies but you know mothra makes a little cameo here just to kind of warn everybody like the early warning system i guess like the emergency broadcast system but uh not much to say about mothra or the cosmos other than they serve as exposition um when we're on birth island um we get the birth island theme which sounds like the theme song to you only live twice and this is very odd to me because there is a Toho connection with You Only Live Twice. So for those of you who don't know, You Only Live Twice, which was made in 1967, takes place almost entirely in Japan, and the two Bond girls are both Japanese. And as it would be, they were in fact played by two Toho regular actresses. The character of Aki, who is the super cool Japanese secret agent that helps Bond out, uh, is Akiko Wakabayashi, who we best know as Princess Salno from Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster, and Kissy Suzuki, who is Bond's fishing girl uh, slash fake Japanese uh, wife, is played by Mai Hama, who is uh, Madame Piranha from King Kong Escapes. Now, Wakabashi and Hama appeared together in King Kong vs. Godzilla, and they also have many other Toho credits to them, so I always thought it was funny that the one uh, James Bond film that took place in Japan had the Toho connections there with the two uh, Toho actresses. Uh, making a uh, making an appearance in there, so I just thought it was funny then to have the song sound like you only live twice, uh, you know, many years after the fact. Just a little strange coincidence. So of course, I always kind of because of that, I always associate you only live twice with Toho because of the presence of those two actresses in there. Uh, the music in this timeout is not by Akira Ufukube, who thought that the concept of an evil space clone of Godzilla was kind of dumb. So instead, it's done by Takeyuki Hattori. Ooh, this was his first uh, Godzilla score. He would also go on to do Godzilla 2000. It's generally a good score, but, you know, it's kind of hurt by the fact it's way too repetitious in, in, in certain parts. There's certain themes that are just reused uh, over and over. And it, has, it, it lacks a really memorable theme for any of the new characters like we had for the Mechagodzilla in the previous film. Understanding that was kind of a recycled theme for me for Kube, but it's now become very much identified with the Heisei Mechagodzilla, so it's a very, um, you know, successful score in that sense. The music's not bad, it's just not as good as the ones around it, which is kind of damning it with faint praise, I think. It's still very listenable. Uh, Yuki, we meet on Birth Island, he's the grizzled soldier. He's very cool. I like Yuki a lot. He's the guy that's kind of seen everything, done everything. He's got his own agenda and his own, uh, you know, point of view. I don't like his dubbed voice compared to his natural voice. Um, he is um, his dubbed voice is a little a little too 
not not gruff enough, I don't think. Whereas his actual voice is is very cool. We also get a very gratuitous butt shot of him, so a little something for the ladies right there uh, when he's taking a shower on Birth Island. So you got that to look forward to. Um, also on Birth Island, we catch up with um, a baby Godzilla, now known as Little Godzilla. He has gone totally kawaii on us. Um, if you thought Minya was kawaii, Little Godzilla is like a living, super deformed drawing. He has gigantic eyes, little nose, you know, little hands that he, he waves around and stuff. He's adorable, absolutely adorable, which is why a lot of people utterly despise him, because he's clearly there for the kawaii market to sell the little kids. Uh, he doesn't have much of a role in here. He does stand up to Space Godzilla before getting, you know, uh, um, locked in the little crystal prison, and we see him again at the end. It's kind of a, a just a cute little appearance. He... Um, the progression from Baby Godzilla to Little Godzilla 2 we'll see as Godzilla Jr. in the next film. Um, he plays a much bigger role in the two films around it. Here, he's here because we introduced him, we gotta catch up with him, and if we can sell a few cute toys, eh, why not? Uh, I always liked him, because I, I don't I don't mind things that are kawaii, because I understand that, that they're just meant to be cute and not to be taken too seriously, and Little G is clearly not meant to be taken seriously. Uh, during the briefing... After the um, space station is destroyed, a NASA official says, and I quote, NASA can only speculate it was some sort of huge monster. Well, obviously, if the space station is destroyed, clearly it was a huge monster that did it. Nothing else could usually go wrong in space. Now, that's just crazy talk otherwise. I mean, come on. Speaking of a huge monster in space, when Space Godzilla is in space, um, the flying puppet is pretty much inarticulated, but it looks like this was done by design. One of the typical complaints for flying puppets, especially in the Heisei films, is the slow-moving wings on, um, you know, like Rodan and Mothra and Batra. And here, because Space Godzilla flies with a flight mode, uh, kind of like King Ghidorah in his um, um, Meteor or Gigan, uh, you know, whose wings don't flap, and who also can travel in the little crystal. Because of that, it actually looks pretty decent, because it's just to get the giant crystal backpack, and he's just flying through. And what they do then is they cut up to close-ups of the face, and the face is a cable-driven kind of animatronic. So the face is actually very well animated. Reminds me a bit in places of kind of the cable-driven um, puppet face that we got for Godzilla 1985 and also, of course, for close-ups of Godzilla through the rest of the Heisei films. So I think it works pretty well, all told, because he's there, the way he's shot as the puppet is from far enough away that you don't notice that it's really static unless you're looking for it because he's got this giant backpack. Mogra is kind of in the same boat because Mogra, like Mechagodzilla, his flight mode uh, puppet is just him with his head pointed up. You don't expect a robot to have flapping wings and all that, so him looking stiff is okay. He's a machine. You know, that was always one of the, um, the, the, the what do you say, the uh, universal truths of um, you know, modeling, was that if you're making a robot, it's okay sometimes to have seams on them, unless you're doing, like, Gort. But, you know, if you're doing Mechagodzilla, you know, you don't have to make those seam lines perfect. He's a machine. He's supposed to have seams. So, um... Of course, the battle between Space Godzilla and Mogra in space is notorious among uh, fans of this era of films for the the absolutely pitch-black backdrop uh, that they're fighting in front of and the styrofoam asteroids that are just, just sitting there unmoving. I mean, 
from a narrative standpoint, fine. You know, Mogra is scrambled and gets smashed up and has to limp back home, and Space Godzilla continues on. But this is this is uh, a low point for special effects in the Heisei era. It's just not very well done. the The puppets themselves, as I said, are fine. The choreography is fine, but the the backgrounds just utterly fail here. Um, they they would not do another fight in space in the Heisei films. In fact, I'm trying to think that they they never really did a fight in space, a flying flight in space, in the Showa films, for that matter. I mean, you know, we've got fighting on Planet X in, in Monster Zero, but that's different. And even the back... If they had just used the backdrop from Monster Zero, which had a star field, it would have looked better than this. It's just... It's it's really a low point. And a lot of... a lot Again, a lot of critics of this film point to that as saying, look how bad the effects are. And really, it's it, that's kind of where... that's To me, that's that's the one standout negative sequence. So, you know, I, ugh, it's it's unfortunate, but it's there. You know, you gotta take the good and the bad with these sort of things, so, um, you know, do with that as you will. Um, when we're on Birth Island, um, Godzilla gets, uh, shot with the, uh, transmitter in the back of his neck, and it's a little satellite dish. This, of course, jumps me back immediately to Titanosaurus in Godzilla, where they do something similar. They shoot a receiver into his neck so they can bombard him with sonic waves and, uh, get him disoriented. You know what, I thought, I realized this while making my notes, is that I have made reference to Titanosaurus and Terror of Mechagodzilla like three or four times on the show, and we are nowhere near covering that movie on the show aside, so look it up if you're confused, or uh, email me and I'll, I'll explain it, I guess, but um, uh, we do have the Titanosaurus figure coming from X-Plus pretty soon, so keep an eye out for that one. Everybody loves Titanosaurus. <laughs> um, that same sequence, uh, we get Godzilla making landfall on Birth Island, and, you know, one of the complaints of a friend of mine in college was that oh, water doesn't scale. Water and fire don't scale well, and they don't. But this sequence with Godzilla with water up to his, uh, the top of his thighs, and then very quickly coming, as you can see, he comes onto the shelf, is really well done. This whole, it's a very basic sort of um, a sequence from a narrative standpoint, just Godzilla landing on Birth Island, stepping on some of Yuki's booby traps and being driven in a certain direction, and then getting hit with the uh, the psychic whammy from Project T and turning around and going back out to sea. But the way it's achieved is very well done, and I think it's it's one of the best of se- uh, effect sequences in the film, which makes it all the it stands out all the more being juxtaposed very closely with the Space Godzilla Mogra space fight. So you know, there's good. Like I said, there's good and bad in here. And uh, I think I think the good outweighs the bad, but for other people, your mileage may vary. But I think that's a very well done uh, sequence for what could have been a very basically done uh, situation of Godzilla coming ashore. We've seen Godzilla come ashore numerous times in over the years, and this one I thought was as well done to give attention to the water detail. Not long after that, of course, Space Godzilla lands on Birth Island. The Space Godzilla suit itself is very detailed. It's a very nice, you know, evil version of Godzilla. Um, the shoulder pads that it has reminds me of the Super Nintendo game Super Godzilla. When, in that game, when Godzilla reached a certain enough power, he would turn into Super Godzilla, naturally, and he got big shoulder pads like that, so there's always been speculation that Space Godzilla's final design, you know, borrowed elements uh, from Super Godzilla, which I want to say came out in 1993, 92-93, it was before this movie, so it definitely was out there. Uh, Space Godzilla went through numerous design iterations. If you go to ToheoKingdom.com, you can see, and go to Godzilla vs. Space Godzilla, you can see a lot of the pre-production art, uh, more crystalline 
uh, forms for space console. One is almost like like a crystalline serpent, which would have been interesting. But I like the design. I always have. And, um, you know, I remember when Trendmasters put out their second wave of toys, Space Godzilla was in there, and so so was Mogra, for that matter. And to me, they were must-haves. I really like both their designs from this. Um, Space Gods, like I said, as far as an evil version of Godzilla, with the big shoulder pads and the bluish skin, I think he just looks fantastic. The little touch of having the mouth kind of like Biolanti, I thought was nice, but the little two little fangs on either side, kind of where the top lip and the bottom lip would meet uh, on the jaw, uh, just giving a nod again to this probably was Biolanti bringing some Godzilla cells out into space at the end of Godzilla's Biolanti when she uh, when she leaves. More on that in a minute. Um, and the Mogra, you know, is an update of the original Mogra with the conical nose and the, uh, you know, the pointy hands and all that and the drill on his back. I think he works really well. Uh, and I think the Gatai Robo, the combining Robo aspect of it, where you can split into two, is a nice touch again to differentiate him from Mechagodzilla because none of the MGs have ever really had the splitting apart aspect. They had the upgrading, you know, with Garuda attaching to Mechagodzilla's back and then we saw with Kiru. Um, having the, uh, you know, the, the, the blue, the, um, support jets with him, but never the splitting apart. And so I think that's a, that was a nice, uh, improvement on, an improvement, evolution, I should say, of the, uh, the giant robot, uh, you know, characters that were used here in the Heisei films. And I like them both very well. So I think both of the new monsters in this, uh, come off very well. Space Godzilla, again, being a space monster, has numerous strange powers, including his telekinesis, which is kind of the main one. He flies himself around um, using telekinesis. He can pick up and launch the crystals like missiles, which is nice. And then his his beam, instead of being a straight beam, it twists around. It looks almost like a mix if you took like the way that Godzilla's beam is animated and King Ghidorah's gravity beams are animated, the way it kind of arcs through the air a little bit. Very cool. And uh, I think a well-realized monster, whether you like him or not, I think technically he comes to go, he comes to life very well, and he has a lot of, uh, you know, has a lot to offer. I think as a villainous monster, he's specifically an evil space monster. Um, not the not the only part of this film that harkens back to the Showa era in a lot of ways is having an evil monster from space to Godzilla and an ally need to fight. So, like I said, I I, I think he works well. I mentioned Biolanti. Now during the briefing, we do get flashbacks to both 1989, Godzilla vs. Violante, and 1992, uh, Godzilla vs. Mothra. And they use uh, stock footage from those films to show us the monsters. So we do briefly get to see Violante, and we briefly get to see uh, the full-size Mothra as they talk about the uh, opportunities for Godzilla cells to be brought into outer space. Now, the explanation of, you know, uh, the, that the cells are brought into a black hole and then ejected out of a white hole. It's such utter nonsense that it doesn't even pass the smell test. You know, the, the science-y type of test that we like. You know, the fake-sounding science at least sounds somewhat plausible. Not even close to that. Um, but as a fan of Space Godzilla, I'm willing to let that pass. I probably shouldn't, because that's some real nonsense, even for a series of films that does include a character who reprograms himself to grow giant. Yes, I'm looking at you, Jet Jaguar, but this to me is somehow worse. Because, you know, that the Heisei films were supposed to take place in the real world, and this is not. But, you know what, again, it, it's, I'm willing to accept all the giant monsters and the robot and the space monster existing in the first place, but not the black hole, white hole stuff, so I probably should just breathe and just relax. 
Um, oh, another flashback we get, we do get to see the death of Colonel Gondo from Godzilla vs. Biolanti, um, when he shoots the, um, the anti-nuclear energy bacteria right down Godzilla's throat in Osaka, and then G smashes the building, so we do get to see, uh, the death of Colonel Gondo. I like the, the romance, uh, bit. It's, it's very, I don't want to say subdued, but it's, it's, it's interesting to have Yuki and Professor Gondo's, um, you know, romance is very much based on him being very gruff towards her. And, you know, he tells before they fly off in the Mogra, he says, hey, go fill my lighter up. It's out of fluid. You know, so I think I think Yuki is so kind of obsessed with, um, you know, his his vengeance that he wants on Godzilla that it's hard. It's hard for him to interact with people. And we see that throughout it. And, you know, considering that him and, and the colonel were such good friends, you, you know, he probably knew his sister beforehand. And, you know, now it's kind of weird and he probably always had a thing for her, but now he's got to learn to let go. So I always liked it. A lot of people, again, don't care for, uh, Yuki and Gondo being, uh, you know, shipped, so to speak. But I, I like it. I think it comes up, uh, comes up. Okay. Uh, during the Yakuza subplot, Mickey uses her telekinesis, which she had not really done before. Um, she did her, you know, her vaguely defined psychic powers, but in this case, she is strapped down to a table and used as a human shield, and then she actually uses her TK to lift the table up, allowing Koji to shoot the guy under the table. Um, it's kind of, I, I think this is an amusing sequence. I, a lot, again, a lot of folks online have, have a lot of distaste for the Yakuza subplot because they think it, it just distracts from the story and drags on. Now, I'm not gonna, not gonna lie, this film probably could use about 10 to 15 minutes of cuts to, to cut it down because it is very long in a lot of spots. But this is another one that makes me rem- makes me think of the the Showa sequences, specifically when the princess gets brought to the um, to the oh the medical facility in Ghidorah the Three Headed Monster, and Malness and his men are trying to kill her. You know that it's it's one of those types of things that the subplot that kind of drives the human part of it to get the humans where they need to be. So I never minded this, frankly, um, especially when compared to the fact that there are several sequences of just Space Godzilla flying over cities and Godzilla walking through cities to show them going both uh, to Fukuoka. And those could be cut because those are very repetitive. And I know we're loath to cut effect sequences, but they're just... You know, they're repetitive. It's the same sequence of Godzilla walking and Godzilla, or excuse me, in space Godzilla flying. And there's no, you know, there's no miniature destruction. You know, they're, they're well put together, uh, you know, shots. But to me, that would have been, that, that is more something I lean towards as being cut. Because to me, it doesn't add anything to the story. Whereas the Yakuza side of this is, yeah, it's kind of tacked on. But like I said, it, it again makes me think of the Showa films. And I think that was the intention here was to produce kind of a modernist take on a Showa film. Um, we, uh, another show, <laughs> another show, a trope, so to speak, is we get a naval blockade of Godzilla, uh, before he comes, um, comes, uh, ashore while heading to Fukuoka. This is stock footage from Godzilla versus Mothra 92. Uh, easy to tell the Godzilla suit is different enough that you can probably tell if you're looking for it. Um, although most casual viewers probably won't, won't notice. And it's easier to tell on DVD because, um, you know, we mostly see, uh, the Godzilla from farther away. But of course, if you've watched Godzilla vs. Mothra, you're gonna recognize this footage anyway, but, um, you know, again, stock footage happens. It, you gotta deal with it. Now, from there, we go and we see the image of the crystals rising up all over Fukuoka. This is one of the most striking visuals from the entire Heisei era films, and one of my absolute favorite. It really does, 
um, give it a very alien science fiction, unusual quality. You know, and a, the Hayside films tried very much in a lot of ways to be set in a realistic setting, uh, to portray the world in a more, um, you know, again, realistic way than we did in the Showa films. Whereas here, this is something I would more expect to see in a Showa film. This reminds me, uh, as I said earlier, a lot of the surface of, Planet X from Monster Zero or something like that where or even like the uh, alien landscape from Gamera versus Guren where it's clearly uh, something that's that's not normal and not realistic. I really like it. I've got a really nice diorama of the scene with Godzilla standing amongst all the crystals in Fukuoka Tower that I really enjoy. That's one of the things that I've always liked about Space Godzilla is the visuals uh, associated with the character and his crystals. Now from there the battle itself um, is a lot like a video game. There's a lot of back and forth actions, you know, attacks and counterattacks from the, the three parties involved. It goes on for a really long time. It's almost 40 minutes of pretty much nonstop Daikaiju combat, which is a lot, especially for this era. Uh, there's a lot of good monster action in there, you know. We get Mogra fighting Space Godzilla, we get him splitting in two, we get Godzilla fighting Space Godzilla, we get all the Space Godzilla special attacks and all that. But there's not a lot of human stuff in there to break it up. Kind of the way I always, I guess the way I grew up with it and the way I always kind of, uh, you know, in my head imagine these scenes playing out is like in Ghidorah, a three-headed monster, where, yes, there's a big battle going on between the monsters, but the humans are doing their own thing. And here, because three of our human characters are in the Mogra, and the others are standing watching the Mogra, there's not a lot of human action in here to kind of, you know, change the pace a little bit. In a lot of ways, this is like the back halves of both Godzilla vs. Gigan and Godzilla vs. Megalon, which feature very long monster effect sequences with only minimal human stuff, less in Godzilla vs. Megalon than in Godzilla vs. Gigan, uh, which, again, makes sense, as this film is kind of the 90s version of a Showa film from the 1970s with the space monster and, uh, you know, Godzilla having an ally and all that kind of stuff. So I can, I can understand that. I'm not sure if that was really the intention, but that's certainly the impact and the, the kind of visceral feeling that I as a viewer get while watching it. Uh, after the fight, we get the happy ending. We get two couples together, which is, uh, you know, the difference between a comedy and a drama is the drama ends in a funeral and a comedy ends in a wedding. Well, we're not quite to that level, but clearly, uh, this has a more, um, you know, happy, upbeat ending, uh, with the, um, you know, with the couples of, uh, uh, Gondo and, uh, Yuki and, um, Koji and Mickey all together happy with, uh, Keo screaming at Godzilla, which is, is funny because he's been the calm and rational one who has wanted not to be, not to use violence for the whole film. And now he's screaming about unfinished business. So I thought that was a bit, a bit, the uh, a bit of amusing little touch, little exit tag for the character of Keo, who's basically been Koji's sidekick. But, you know, even when they knock out Yuki, he laments, oh, great, more violence. This is so typical. So. I, I like the ending. It, it brings a smile to my face, and it's nice to have a happy ending. You know, uh, you know, we had a happy ending last time out, but it was kind of bittersweet. You know, we've had those before. These kind of bittersweet, kind of or ambiguous endings, whereas here it's a straight-up happy ending. Godzilla goes back to uh, Birth Island, <coughs> Monster Island, and uh, Space Godzilla is destroyed. The humans are all safe, and baby Go or little Godzilla is happily bouncing around the island. So, kind of again, like the end of a show of film with everybody waving goodbye as as the monsters leave. So ultimately, this is a wildly uneven film. There's both good and bad stuff in it. There's plenty of both. It's a lesser entry, I think, 
but overall, I always find it a lot of fun. It's very late Showa in a lot of ways, which to me adds to the charm because I like a lot of those Showa films. Now, you do get folks that the only Showa film they like is Godzilla 54, and they kind of, you know, eh, they're iffy on the other ones, and so one that emulates those later, those 70s Showa films, they kind of, uh, you know, they're, they're turned off by, it, and I can totally understand that. So, but it's, you know, if you don't like the backside of the Showa era, this will be harder to appreciate, absolutely. And there's no doubt about it, in my mind, it needs, said, between 10 to 12 minutes cut out, because at a running length of 1 hour and 46 minutes, it's just plain too long. I, um, you know, there's, there's, I don't think, even among fans of this film, I don't think there's much question there. There's not enough story here to make this an hour and 45 minutes. It's just, just not going to happen. Um... The effects themselves, to me, they 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 astound. A lot of the stuff that Kawakita does very well is done well here. The mats, the opticals and beam work, the suit design. But then you know, again, you're always going to come back to that that space fight, and it's like that just looks corny, and it it shouldn't be there. If you couldn't pull that effect off that way, you should have done it a different way. You know, find another way to to tell that. Not maybe not have Mogra engage in space. Maybe have Mogra engage in atmosphere. Which they have a, you know, they've, they've had more experience doing bat fights, uh, monster fights in atmosphere than they do in space. Maybe that would have been a better route. But then again, you know, it is, Mogra is space worthy and it is space Godzilla. So I don't know. It's, it's hard. It's easy to second guess. All that said, I would still choose to watch this one over Godzilla vs. Mothra 92, which I still think is the least of the Heisei films just because it, it is kind of a rehash of Mothra and Godzilla vs. Mothra from before it. But, again, it, it's still definitely a low point between two really good ones and two really popular ones, with Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla coming before it, and, of course, Godzilla vs. Destoroya coming immediately after. Uh, lots of monsters and mecha action to keep the young and the young at heart to G-Fans satisfied, so keeping that in mind, uh, I'd say that you'll probably have a pretty good time throwing this in and uh, sitting down on a Saturday night and then watching Godzilla and Space Godzilla smash things up. Now, if you want to own Godzilla vs. Space Godzilla, you have a couple of options. Uh, you can buy it on a double-feature DVD with Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla uh, 93. Or you can go on a Blu-ray disc, which is double-featured with Godzilla vs. Destoroya. Now, the Blu-ray has English and Japanese audio. This is the international dub uh, in the English. and has Japanese audio with removable English subtitles. The DVD only has the international English dub. Now, I looked this up as I'm going to record. The Blu-ray is actually cheaper on Amazon. It's both are good options, depending on what your stance is on international dubs. Uh, some people really don't like the international dubs, but, you know, some people also don't like subtitles. So that's really, that's got a personal preference. Also, depending on what movies you already own, because it's a different double feature. The reason for this was that Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla 93 got its own Blu-ray re release, so that kind of threw off the um, um, the double feature, how they had the double features going, so it kind of messed it up when they went to Blu-ray, but both are good. I have the Blu-ray set. It looks wonderful. <laughs> it's the, it's had the uh, you know, the picture looks great. Uh, makes the makes the asteroids look even more fake, if that's, uh, I don't know if that's a plus or a minus, but it is what it is. Um, and I usually watch with the Japanese um, language and then the dub, uh, excuse me, the subtitles, although I did watch the dub with this one. This, that was the copy I had available to watch, so... 
Um, by all means, uh, go check those out. Be sure to use the Amazon.com link on TutureFreaks.com before you do any shopping if you want to check this one out. So I think that about closes the book on Godzilla vs. Space Godzilla. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back here on Earth Destruction Directive. past, a monstrous hybrid of land and marine reptiles was sealed into a state of suspended animation, slumbering through the fall of dinosaurs and the rise of man. But awakened by an undersea nuclear test, the creature returned to life, now breathing the fires of radiation. Stan Lee presents Godzilla, King of the Monsters. We are back on Earth Destruction Directive. Marvel Godzilla number 8 was cover dated March 1978 and released in December 1977. Credit goes to Mike's Amazing World of Comics at dcindexes.com. The cover is by Ernie Chan and uh, is a very dynamic cover, one of the uh, most well-known covers out of this series. In fact, I might go as far to say as the most well-known cover of the series. And it shows Godzilla battling with Red Ronin in, um, can't, in, in a harbor. We're not sure what harbor this is. There's nothing, no recognizable buildings on the skyline, but, and it also has a, uh, a wonderful little bit of cover copy. It says, has the monster lizard met his match? Which reminds me of the early trailers for A View to a Kill. Has James Bond finally met his match? Um, but Max Zorin nor Mayday appear in this comic, so. But very good cover. Uh, like I said, one of the best, so. Our writer this time is Doug Mensch. Our penciler is Herb Trimpey. Our inker is also Herb Trimpey. Letterer is Denise Wool. Our colorist is Phil Rashi. Our editor is Archie Goodwin. And our title is Titan Times Two. And our synopsis comes from marvel.wikia.com. With only the Red Ronin piloted by Rob Takaguchi standing between Godzilla and the San Diego military's nuclear stockpile, the S.H.I.E.L.D. Godzilla squad wonders what to do next. Robert attacks Godzilla to try and keep him away, and tries to come to grips with the notion that to save everyone, he must kill his beloved Godzilla. However, when the S.H.I.E.L.D. helicarrier is about to attack Godzilla, Robert comes up with another idea, and using cables dropped from the Red Ronin, flies him away from the missile site. Godzilla, however, breaks free and begin to, begins to rampage along San Diego's shore, forcing S.H.I.E.L.D. to take action. However, Robert keeps them at bay with Red Ronin's weapons, and points out to the sea. Godzilla takes the boy's meaning and leaves the scene. Afterward, Robert believes that Godzilla is now his friend. Next issue, a Leviathan in Las Vegas. 
So after two issues of build-up, we finally get the throwdown between Godzilla and Red Ronin, and it's great to see a legit monster versus giant robot fight in this title. So let's get right into the notes. The cover, as I said, is by Ernie Chan, and it, it is great. It is the excellent all-around cover. It's very dynamic versions of Godzilla and Red Ronin. Uh, you know, striking at each other. We see Godzilla's tail errantly knocking over a building in the background. Um, we see Red Ronin's um, the, the force of the uh, in the water from his leg is tipping boats over. It's just really great. I, I, I would, along with issue number one, this is to me the most iconic Marvel Godzilla cover. It's the one I've seen referenced the most, the one I've seen online the most. I think because it has Red Ronin on it, and like I said, it's very dynamic. It's a really good cover, and, uh, you know, it was a, was a joy to see this one come up. Uh, page one, we get our splash page. Uh, Trimpy's um, Red Ronin is a big change from Chan's on the cover. It's very much what we would see early in the uh, run of Shogun Warriors. Um, you know, he's very angular, very stiff, uh, you know, looks very machine-like. It's not bad, it's just different, and if you're expecting him to look like he does on the cover, it can be a little jarring, but, uh, you know, I'm, I've, I know what Trimpy's robots look like, and this is a Trimpy robot for sure. We have uh, Red Ronin standing in front of the missiles, acting like a sentinel, and Godzilla, we're looking kind of over his shoulder at him, and we see the uh, the missile silos behind, but we also see all the people running away from the failed military attack uh, last issue, so I thought that was a nice touch. Pages 3 through 7 is the initial combat between Red Ronin and Godzilla. Uh, I, I think this is very well done. There's some coloring in here is great because we get Red Ronin's laser blade, which is uh, kind of a medium orange with a red uh, field around it, and then lots and lots of Kirby Crackle in there, so you know it's powerful if it's got Kirby Crackle going on. And, um, you know, Godzilla blasts back and forth with atomic breath, so the two kind of tussle. They're kind of feeling each other out. Rob, of course, is trying not to hurt Godzilla so that he's not really kind of fighting all the way out here and he's trying to gain control of how to use the blade. So, uh, exchange here, it's, you know, it's not really, it's kind of the early stages of a heavyweight fight, you know, the, the feeling out session. Uh, turning over now to page 14, Rob gets the idea that he's got to get everybody out or get Godzilla away from there. Panel one looks like it could have come from an issue of Shogun Warriors with um, Red Ronin with stiff arms, stiff legs, with the boot jets flying, you know, full uh, full afterburn here, shooting up in the air. And we see the cables come out, and it wraps around Godzilla's shoulders and pulls him along. Of course, anytime you're towing Godzilla, I am, of course, reminded of King Kong getting towed in both King Kong vs. Godzilla and King Kong Escapes. Because when you absolutely positively need to move a giant gorilla, you know, Toho's the people that, that'll take care of that for you, so... Uh, I, I, I do like this. And then on page 15, panel 2, we see Red Ronin flying away with his arms outstretched and Godzilla behind him being towed with his arms outstretched and then the behemoth behind them giving chase. They look like they're in a DC comic. It's like Superman and, and uh, I don't know, Martian Manhunter because he's green flying the way it's flying right at the reader. Very Gil Kane-ish <laughs> sort, of, uh, sort of panel here in the middle of a uh, uh, Herb Trimpy monster book. So do with that what you will. Pages 16 and 17, Godzilla breaks free and falls into San Diego Harbor. Uh, he looks very anthropomorphic in a few of these panels, mostly because he's he's grabbing the cables with his hands and putting them in the path of his atomic breath. So Godzilla definitely looks very uh, humanoid in those, which is normally okay because Godzilla typically does look and act humanoid because he is, you know, 
generally speaking, a man in a suit. But it's eight in the Marvel comic, which tends to present a more animalistic than humanistic. So, it again, it's it's not not anything major. He's not, uh, you know, but there are people that get annoyed that Godzilla sits down on a rock in Gator vs. the Three-Headed Monster, which I think is like the third time I've mentioned that movie this episode. So, go back and listen to episode uh, uh, two of our Destruction Directive if you want to hear about that one. Um, turning over now to page 22, which is the second splash page, and it is a much better splash page than the first one, as Red Ronin is standing amongst the harbor and there's a ship crashing into his right leg. Godzilla is coming up out from under the water and is sending a battleship flying off his back as he rears up to attack Red Ronin, who is grimacing down at his foe. Uh, just a, a great panel. This is an excellent page. This is the type of stuff I, I like to see from Trimpy. Again, the use of sailors on the deck of the uh, battleship to show the scale and uh, really just, you know, showing the size of the combatants involved here. Over on page 23, panel 3, as Red Ronin takes a uh, kind of a broad uh, roundhouse with his sword at Godzilla, we get a great uh, uh, sound effect of Zacked! Which, uh, you know, has that kind of, uh, it's not in any fancy font, but it's a, I, I like the Zact. It shows that it's got a nice electrified sound to the hit there. And then the next panel, panel four, we get a full, we're basically looking down Godzilla's throat as he unloads a torrent of atomic breath. And it's H-R-A-H-H-H, a right, uh, right at the reader, which I think is a nice touch. We get to see his maw of teeth. Which uh, are kind of look like the teeth from the Jaws poster, actually, which is uh, which is pretty cool, I think. Uh, over now on page twenty-six, Red Ronin breaks out his shield, which he then naturally, this being a Marvel comic, uses like Captain America, including throwing it or excuse me, launching it off of his wrist and hitting Godzilla right in the mush with the great sound effect of spoom. So that was that's nice, and then, of course it comes right back to him as all shields do in Marvel comics. So turning over to the next page, page 27, panels 3 through 6, uh, this is a series of four panels right in the middle, about a third of the height of the page, very small, as Rob tries to get um, Red Ronin to use his, uh, turn his left hand into the laser, and we see it, the hand outstretched, and it's the fingers snap together and then fold back and reveal into a laser. Now, especially by Trimpy, this looks like something, especially, and, and also given the fact that at this point he's got a, ye- a red hand and a yellow forearm, this looks like it could be straight out of an Iron Man book, is what it looks like. Like Tony had put some kind of a laser torch or something into the gauntlet of his armor. So I, that, that to me made me smile as an Iron Man fan. And then the next panel, he shoots the uh, laser, but Godzilla ducks, which is great. I love any time Godzilla is shown to be agile and not just a big lumbering monster. So that that was a nice touch. And then following that, Godzilla counterattacks with a tail chop straight out of the NES Godzilla game with the great sound effect of Klong as he hits uh, Red Ronin right in the breadbasket, sending him flying down. Uh, nice sequence there. Uh, turning over to page 30, panel 4, Rob actually attacks the behemoth and knocks all of its power out. This, to me, is the main problem I have with the story, this idea that Rob wants to be Godzilla's friend and is willing to attack S.H.I.E.L.D. to do it. I just have a hard time accepting it. I know that's Rob's character. I know they've set it up this way, but, you know, after the whole thing of him stealing the robot and all that, I don't feel much sympathy for him. And I kind of wish that Godzilla would roast him alive in here, frankly, and put him in the hospital and get him out of this story, because Rob is a real pain in the butt. Red Ronin is a cool robot, but Rob is a pain. And him constantly whining about S.H.I.E.L.D. trying to stop Godzilla and 
how he's got to figure out some way to stop Godzilla without hurting him and all that. I mean, I get what they're doing, but I don't know. It doesn't really appeal to me, and I don't particularly care for it. Over on page 31, this is the last page, Godzilla understands Red Ronin's sign language, it seems, and just walks off into the wilderness. Kind of an anticlimactic ending, but you knew this was had to be the one they were going to have. They weren't going to have it be, you know, like a typical Godzilla versus a robot fight in a movie where Godzilla tears the robot apart. Because they just made, just spent two issues introducing Red Ronin. They're not going to get rid of him that quickly. So, you know, they, they got to kind of have him be a, you know, a typical Marvel non-ending in that sense. Um, let's see, compared to the last two, this is a big step up. There's a lot of action, especially over the last issue, which was just, you know, the, hey, look at Red Ronin, he's cool. So this, this is great to see an actual honest-to-goodness monster versus robot fight, even with Rob kind of pulling his punches through most of it. The art is what you've come to expect from Trimpy. I don't think there's going to be any converts uh, to his style based on this issue, especially given the very um, you know dynamic and memorable cover from Ernie Chan. Uh, but that said, I still really like Trimpy's art, and I'm enjoying seeing him handling the King of Monsters, and he's uh, you know making Red Ronin into a very memorable character as well. I think with his styling here, I'll be interested to see where the story goes from here because I know obviously we're shifting to Vegas, uh, as we saw from the next issue, Barb. But are we going to get away from Rob and S.H.I.E.L.D. for a little bit? I don't know. I, like I said, I have been reading ahead, so I'm not really sure where we're going to go. But, you know, like I said, the, every every month when I read an issue of this, I enjoy it, and I'm eager to read the next one. So they're doing their... So looking over ads, uh, we get the Vampire Slim Jim ad, um, typical hodgepodge, uh, get rich and famous with the Clark bars. Mm, nothing really too crazy here. I do like this one, Coming for Christmas... Marvel Comics Super Special number two, The Savage Sword of Conan. You made our Marvel Comics Super Special starring Kiss to sell it sensation of the year. And now because you demanded, we're giving the same full-color, giant-sized treatment the most savage hero of them all. On sale December 13th, 1977. 50 ha striking hand-colored pages of Conan excitement plus biographies of the people behind the barbarian. Bonus first-time ever info on the Conan movie. Very neat. Uh, I've I do have I don't have a ton of Marvel Conan, but I do have some, and I tend to get the the big ones like that. Very cool, very cool uh, house ad here. Um, let's see the ice uh, Cynometrics, an Olympic champion's discovery. Apparently, if you're a girl, we'll give you hips and um, thighs and boobs, according to the little diagram here. Not really sure how that works, but. I'm willing to let it slide. We get the Marvel uh, bullpen bulletins where they talk about the Marvel Comics Super Special. Uh, they talk a little bit here about uh, Devil Dinosaur and Machine Man. Uh, adding, you know, mentioning they mentioned it last week. Uh, the UFO connection. Let's see. Uh, talking about some Defenders, Ghost Rider. Uh, the passing of Ron Haydock, who contributed many articles to our black and white magazines, particularly Monsters of the Movies. And um, let's see, that's, a, that's about it on the bullpen bulletins. And then we get a hostess ad. Spider-Man spoils a snatch. And huh, it goes a little something like this. Stop! Thief! Peter, someone's stolen the Cope Emerald! Whoops, what's Peter Parker doing here at a time like this? Gee, Mary Jane, I just thought of something. 
Wow, some smart aleck is projecting hundreds of images. My spiderwebs can't catch what's not real, but how to tell which is the real villain? Nothing human can resist Hostess Cupcakes. He can't help but show himself. Delicious, absolutely delicious. My images can't enjoy this delicious devil's food cake, this fudgy chocolatey icing, the fresh wholesome taste. I can. Oh, fudge. I didn't get the Cope Emerald, but I did get the rich taste of Hostess Cupcakes. The day isn't a total loss. Peter Parker, you missed all the excitement. I just went out for some Hostess Cupcakes. That's excitement enough for me. You get a big delight in every bite of Hostess Cupcakes. I guess this guy's name is Smart Alec? He, he looks like uh, he goes to the Lex Luthor School of... Uh, of uh, Barbary because he's completely bald wearing an orange jumpsuit. He makes a bunch of copies of himself. And this is, uh, he, but I don't know why, but this guy, make, I guess because of the look on his face in the, in the second to last panel, he looks like one of the Beagle Boys. Like he's gonna go steal the Cope Emerald. Ha ha ha. And then he's gonna go try and break into Scrooge's money bin. Um, not, yeah, I, I don't know what to make of this. This is just silliness. Just plain silliness. Make money, get prizes on the back cover with American Seeds. Um, yeah, good issue. I enjoyed this one, and I'm enjoying this series, so it's been a lot of fun for me to read. I'm, I'm curious where we're going to go from here. All right, I am going to take a quick break, and we will be right back to finish up the show here on Earth Destruction Directive. As superhero movies are becoming mainstream entertainment at theaters around the world, comic fans also have plenty of heroic action on the small screen to keep them sated while waiting for the next blockbuster. We are in a golden age of superhero television shows, with plenty of offerings from both the Marvel and DC universes, and the trend shows no sign of slowing down. To chronicle these recent shows and even examine some of the classics, we are proud to present Weekly Heroics, a two true freaks guide to heroes on TV. In every podcast, we'll be doing recaps of individual episodes of one Marvel show and one DC show until we catch up to them or some supervillains shut us all down. My name is Scott McGregor, and I'm the fastest podcaster alive. That's what she said. And I'm Chris Tyler, one of your agents of cool. To bring you this podcast, we each have to become someone else. We each have to become something else. Two! Okay, we are back on Earth Destruction Directive. And now this is your chance to interact with Earth Destruction Directive as I hold in my hand some emails. And if you would like to email the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. You have a couple other ways to get in touch with me. They are all detailed in the outro to the show. So if you want to get in touch some other way, give a listen to that. And uh, let's get into the emails. Our first email comes from uh, my good friend and friend of the show, Adam Tebow. And his subject is simply... Episode 47. He says, Luke! I just wanted to write to let you know that I did, in fact, get your Gal Ranger reference. And what Adam is referring to is I said that Dr. Demonicus and his uh, cronies, the difference between them was that his uh, uniform had horns on it, which was how you knew he was in charge. And I said this is kind of like Gal Ranger, where the bad guys in Gal Ranger called the Augs, uh, localized as the Orgs in Power Rangers Wild Force, the ones that were in charge had a horn. And they were called the Duke Orgs. And the more uh, important and more powerful you were, the bigger your horn was. Kind of like hats in the Catholic Church. And since I'm Catholic, I'm allowed to say that. Glad at least somebody got that reference. 
Adam continues, also, Eskimo Riot is the next is the name of my next ska band, signed Adam Tebow. Absolutely. I would totally go see Eskimo Riot, maybe on a double feature with Melted Butter. And some of my favorite fake band names all time. Um, <laughs> thank you very much for writing in. I, Eskimo Riot is, is a good name for a band. I absolutely agree. Thank you very much, Adam. Our next email comes from Joe Rad and is entitled Big Fan. And Joe writes, uh, Hey, I just wanted to chime in and tell you I'm a big fan of the show. I don't know how much feedback you get, so I just wanted to say I love the podcast and get way too excited when I know a new episode pops up. And Joe, thank you very much. Uh, you say that you don't know how much feedback you get. You know, um, some shows always seem to get a lot of email, and some shows get less. And, you know, ev every podcaster will tell you that the feedback they get, whether it's that, that share on Facebook, a tweet, an email, whatever it is, um, that it, it means a lot because it shows that, that, that this really, we're doing something and people are enjoying it. And that's the main thing. That's the reason I do this. I mean, I, I'm a, you know, giant monsters are my thing and I want to share that with everybody. So I'm, I'm glad that, um, you know, you took the time to write in and I do appreciate that. And, and I'll, I'll tell you every podcaster I know appreciates that. Um, let's see. And Joe continues. I am sure this whole thing is a labor of love, but just know that it brings joy to people. I am a huge Godzilla fan. It was such a big part of my childhood, and I don't have a lot of Godzilla friends, and the ones I do have don't love it to the extent that I do. I understand how that goes. I have a Godzilla tattoo. It's to that level. Cheese and rice, Joe. Send me a picture of that. I don't have any tattoos, but, uh, you know, for a long time, one I wanted was a little super deformed version of Gigan. And uh, <laughs> if I remember, I'll, I'll put the image up in the... Um, in the show notes, a little super deformed guy again, and maybe a Godzilla to go with him. I, I haven't pulled the trigger on it, but, uh, you know, I want to see your tattoo. Please send that along. Um, he says, he continues, so it's nice to hear from someone who loves Big G and the other monster friends as much as I do. Keep them stomping, your pal, Joe Rad. Well, Joe, thank you very much for writing in. And like I said, you're, obviously, if you've got a Godzilla tattoo, your devotion to the fandom is very strong. And I'm glad that, uh, my show helps. Uh, speak to your fan. I, I know how it goes. You know, something that I kind of, I'm not going to say discovered, because I think we all kind of knew this, but something that I observed during the run-up to and release of Godzilla 2014 was a lot of uh, lapsed or maybe just quiet Godzilla fans kind of came up, especially on social media, on Facebook and Twitter and that sort of thing. It's like, oh, I've, I've been a Godzilla fan since I was a little kid. I, I like, you know, I remember watching King Kong versus Godzilla on TV on WPIX or WGN or whatever. And, you know, I think, you know, Godzilla in a lot of ways is like Batman. Um, you know, I, I've had my theory for a while, what I call the, the Batman Minimum Appreciation Index, that everybody likes Batman at least a little bit in some iteration. Nobody actively dislikes Batman that I've ever met. I don't think anybody actively dislikes Godzilla as a character. Now, they may have no interest in the movies. They may not read comics or play the games or anything like that. They may not buy toys. But everybody, I think, likes Godzilla. You know, he's such a likable character. <laughs> a big monster, big rubber monster guy that stomps cities. Everybody likes Godzilla, and everybody knows Godzilla. You know, the terms like Bridezilla, you know, adding Zilla onto something comes from... Um, kind of the unique place that Godzilla holds both in um, Eastern and Western pop culture. So, you know, he, he kind of transcends a lot of things. So I think a lot of people like Godzilla even if they don't like Godzilla. You know what I'm saying? 
Whereas those of us who like Godzilla, I'm doing the uh, the ro- the rolling hand rolling hand motion up to the mic for everyone to see. I think those of us who like Godzilla, we understand and we know and we you know we can talk about this type of uh, giant monster stuff for hours on end and enjoy it and not get tired of it. Much the same way that someone who's a hardcore comic book fan or Doctor Who fan or sports fan or any other type of fandom can talk about that stuff. Giant Monster is just a bit more niche, especially here in the West, whereas uh, back East, it's a little more um, commonplace. But uh, anyway, I'm glad you're enjoying the show. Uh, thank you very much for writing in, and please, please send me a picture of that tat. I'd love to see it. And our last email today comes from Bill Manns and is entitled Tokusatsu Theme Songs. And Bill writes, hey, Luke, really enjoyed the theme song post. Just wanted to add a few of my own to the mix. Iron King, classic tune, and the outro theme is nice, too. I own Iron King. I've got the, I think it's, um, not, um, not Anchor Bay, uh, Mills Creek. I think Mills Creek did a release of that, and I've got it. I'll have to, I haven't had a chance to watch it. I'll have to, I'll cut the theme song in here, and, uh, and we'll enjoy it as I'm talking. Um, also, Megalo Man, another outstanding one, excellent jazzy soundtrack. And Ultraman Nexus. Interesting, because it changes halfway through the show, but I actually liked both. Now, I will say that. The Ultraman Nexus themes both are quite good. They're... What I like about them is they're very modern. You know, you can tell that they were made for a modern Ultra series. They don't try to be throwback in any way. And uh, I really do like them. So, uh, I... I, And, and, you know, maybe I'll I'll work them in over the show and the Megaloman theme uh, on the show as we go forward next couple episodes. Uh, Bill Finch says, I keep up the great work. Bill, Bill, thank you very much for writing in. I'm glad you enjoyed that Tokusatsu theme song show. I blatantly stole that from other better podcasts than mine. And you know what? Sometimes the best ideas are the ones, you ste- the ones that you steal. So no problem there. Um, I'm still getting email about it, so obviously people really enjoyed it. Japanese, half phonetic English, you know, because they have absolutely no idea what the Japanese is. <laughs> Every now and again, you get that English phrase and you really belt it out, you know. Like the uh, Bokenja, go, 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 ready, go, shishumi Bokenja, so, uh, you know, fun for the whole family, and it's a good thing I commute alone and don't carpool, but I'll leave it at that, so thank you very much for writing in, Bill, hope you continue to enjoy the show, and I'll try to cut some of these songs in uh, over the next few episodes. Uh, now we have come, unfortunately, to the end of another episode of Earth Destruction Directive, but as one thing ends, another must begin. And uh, so what will be covered next time here on Earth Destruction Directive? Well, the next episode we're going back uh, to the small screen. We're going to leave movies behind for a little bit. We're going to be looking at the next two episodes of Ultraman. This is going to be episode 15 and episode 16, featuring the monster Gavadon in episode 15, and the return of Alien Bolton in number 16, the first um, alien, first foe, I should say, monster or alien, of Ultraman to repeat in the series. And uh, I'm not much of a surprise that it's Alien Bolton, the very popular space ninja bug guy. We're also going to be taking a look at Marvel Godzilla number 9, featuring the continued uh, adventures of Big G in the Marvel Universe. Uh, we also should have, um, you know, more news in the run-up to Power Rangers and uh, Kong Skull Island, both of which will be debuting in March. So uh, we're getting getting real close on the cusp of some of those, and any other news that fit that's uh, fit to print, we will report on that here. Um, I want to thank everybody for listening, and I hope everybody enjoyed the show. If you have thoughts, feedback, criticisms, concerns, please go ahead and send them in, EarthDestructionDirective at Yahoo.com. And uh, again, thank you all very much for listening, and keep them stomping.
This has been Earth Destruction Directive, a Dai Kaiju podcast, produced and created by me, Luke Giaconetti, as part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, available at twotruefreaks.com. This is a fan work celebrating the history and culture of Japanese giant monsters. All movies, TV shows, comic books, characters, and other intellectual property is copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. If you'd like to send an email to the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. I respond to all emails, and if you send in some comments, I'll read them on the show. All episodes of Earth Destruction Directive can be found at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find the show on iTunes. Just search for Earth Destruction Directive. You can even leave an iTunes review if you want. You can get in touch with the show on Facebook. Just search for Earth Destruction as the first name and Directive as the last name. You can also get in touch with me on Twitter with the handle Eljacone. That's L-J-A-C-O-N-E. And if you want to buy something discussed on the show, head on over to twotruefreaks.com and click on the Amazon.com link on the front page. Any items you buy during your session on Amazon.com will help keep the lights on, and it won't cost you anything extra. Thanks for listening, and be sure to come back next time for more city-stomping fun on Earth Destruction Directive. Tune in next time to hear the crusty old podcaster from Oklahoma say, There's a WTF (laughs) moment if I ever saw one. Well, it's big and terrible. More frightening than I ever thought possible.